Bless our time in the Word, Father. Guide my teaching. Open the ears that would hear it. And ensure, Father, that it is all according to your will. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 2. We're in chapter 2 of Acts. We're going to focus down on just the first part of the chapter. There probably isn't a chapter in the New Testament more important than chapter 2 of Acts, at least because it is really the birth of the church. This chapter is the place you will find many misunderstandings, many people who come to this chapter and leave with certain understandings that are not exactly correct. And in some cases, they've built entire doctrines, theologies, even denominations, simply out of what they saw in this one chapter of Scripture. And uh, there is certainly a lot we can learn and certainly a lot we can apply. But keeping it in its context and understanding it in that way is critical to getting it right. This is the same as for any other chapter of Scripture. So we probably need to spend a little extra time at points uh, to get into the details, the depths of what's in this chapter and to really understand it. What divides this chapter are two events, each of which has a reaction or a result. So you have event, result, event, result, creating the four parts to the chapter. The two primary events are the arrival of the Holy Spirit, which is what we study tonight. Later, the second event in the chapter, about midway down, is a sermon delivered by the Apostle Peter. The two consequences arising from those two events are, in the case of the first event, the arrival of the Holy Spirit, the consequence is the manifestation of that Spirit among the body of believers. How the arrival of the Spirit is followed by manifestations within the body of Christ, within the believers in that, at that point. And then to the second event, Peter's sermon, the consequences of that are the reactions in the crowd from his sermon. So it's pretty simple to see that pattern in the text, and we'll study it as uh, groups. Tonight we handle the first group, the first event rather, and the first result. Next week, obviously, we'll handle the other. Uh, the book of Acts, as I think I said last week, is a book of transitions in, in the big scheme of things, transitioning out of the old and into the new, out of the Gospels, into the letters, and so on. And as I said already as well, it's not a book of theology. It wasn't written uh, necessarily as a manual for church practice. So if that's the way it's been taught for you, perhaps, or if you thought of it that way yourself, I want to challenge you not to think quite like that as we read the text tonight. Try to divorce some of that from your mind. And let's just look at the text as if it were the first time we were seeing it. For some of us, it may be. So these are the events of the arrival of the Holy Spirit, starting in verse one. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves. And they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Well, and I think I've warned you already, we have to take some time to understand the context. That begins in this case with a careful examination of the opening verse. Because Luke says more than you might have imagined just in the way he opens this scene. When he says, when the day of Pentecost has come, he says a lot. Because in the Greek, what he said literally is, when the day of Pentecost is fulfilled completely. The day of Pentecost is actually a Jewish feast. It predates this moment. The whole reason there was a day of Pentecost on the calendar was because of an earlier event in Jewish history. In Exodus 34, and then again later in Numbers 28, God gave to the nation of Israel 
a feast called the Feast of Weeks. And the feast was given to the nation of Israel as a day to observe, to commemorate when they received the law at the mountain. So on the day Moses descended with the law, that day was to be commemorated forevermore in the Jewish calendar by the Feast of Weeks, which was set on their calendar to be exactly 50 days after Passover. So they had Passover, which was to commemorate, as you know, the day that they killed the lamb and took the blood, put it on the doorpost, and that saved them from the angel of death right before the day of Exodus. That event was memorialized by Passover. Fifty days later, they were to celebrate a feast that memorialized the giving of the law, because in the way it played out historically, the nation received the law 50 days after they left Egypt. So they had received the, they had been kicked out of Egypt, as you know, after that night of Passover, because all the firstborns were killed. That was what it took to get Pharaoh to let them go. They walked through the desert. It took them 50 days of walking and crossing the Red Sea and so on to end up at Mount Sinai or the, the mountain where they were given the law. From that point on that day, the 50th day, when they received the law, that became forever known as the day of Pentecost. Now, the reason the word Pentecost has become associated is because Hellenistic Jews or Culturally Greek Jews had begun to use the word Pentecost as a Greek word that means the 50th day. So the word Pentecost is a Greek word that originated among Jews who used it as a shorthand way of saying the 50th day after Passover. So Luke prefaces his description of the arrival of the Holy Spirit in chapter 2 by announcing to the reader that the day of Pentecost was being fulfilled completely by the events of this chapter. The Feast of Pentecost, which had been celebrated by the Jews since the day they got it in the law from Moses, that event, as it was recurring every year on their calendar, was fulfilled completely on this day. On this particular Pentecost day, the event was being fulfilled. And fulfilled means, in the Greek, completed, brought to its fullness. How is that true? Well, we have to look for parallels here between the events of Exodus... And then look at that and understand how that is being completely fulfilled in the events of what we're seeing here in Acts chapter 2. We've already said that in Exodus, the day of Pentecost followed 50 days after Passover. So the day itself, Pentecost, is linked to Passover. It's 50 days after Passover. So let's look at Passover and let's look at what happened at the time that they received the law for just a moment. So the Passover itself, you already know probably a lot about. Let's just reminds ourselves of a few details. So the Passover, God's people were set free from slavery to Egypt when they took the blood of a spotless lamb and with that blood provided a covering for themselves so that they would not suffer death. So they would not receive the penalty of death. The blood of that lamb was their protection, their covering from the sentence of death. And it became the means for their escaping of Egypt, from escaping slavery. Fifty days later, the people of Israel, the people of God, were alone. Alone in the sense that they were an isolated group of people outside of any country without anybody to turn to, just wandering in the desert. They were fearful. If you go back and read the text of Scripture, you'll see how fearful they were. And they were waiting. They were waiting for God to direct them. God had set them free. They knew that. God had protected them through the the experience of the Red Sea and all the rest. And now they were just sitting in the desert, somewhere they'd never been before. And they were waiting for God to tell them what happens next. At that point, while they were waiting, looking for God to guide them, 
God gave his people a law written on stone. And he handed it to them 50 days after he had set them free from slavery. The giving of that law was accompanied by great signs, great wonders, miraculous events. And again, I'm expecting you to have known some of this already or at least be willing to go back and read some of it yourself if you don't. But at the point when Moses got the law on the mountain, there was earthquakes, there was fire burning the top of the mountain, right? There was many miraculous things that accompanied the moment God was providing the law to the nation of Israel. So that's the scene back when the original day of Pentecost was established. Now, moving to the book of Acts and the time of this moment. This day is also 50 days after what we call Easter. This day of Pentecost in the book of Acts, chapter 2, this is the day 50 days after Passover, which coincides now with the day Jesus was crucified. This is now the day of Pentecost. The way Passover is pictured for us, Passover, as you know, in its original form was with a lamb and all that we just described. But now we understand with Christ's death that Passover in the Old Testament was merely a shadow or a picture of the greater fulfillment, which would ultimately be found in Christ's sacrifice. So when we start to understand Passover and then compare it to what Christ did on the cross, the parallels start to become very easy, right? A lamb, the lamb of God, spotless, sinless, sacrificed to save God's people, sacrificed to save God's people by the blood, by the blood, set them free from slavery in Egypt, set them free from the slavery of sin, protected them from judgment of death, protects us from the judgment of eternal death. So Christ on the cross fulfills ultimately in the fullest possible sense all that was projected in a lesser sense, in a shadow or in a picture through the earlier event. So it's a lesser to greater relationship. The earlier being a shadow, not the fulfillment. The later being the completion, the fulfillment. Once the later has come, as Hebrews tells us, you don't need the former. Its whole purpose was to shadow or picture the later. Once the later comes, you don't need the shadow anymore. It's pointless. It's done its work. It's brought you to the real thing. I often use a a comparison of a real shadow when I'm trying to describe what this point in Scripture is saying. If I was to look at a corner and someone is coming from around the corner to meet me, and as they're walking, I see their shadow on the ground, and they're talking to me, hey, Steve, I'm coming, I might talk back to them for the moment, but what am I going to look at? I might be tempted to look at their shadow because it's the only thing I can see and I'm talking to their shadow. If when they turned the corner, though, would I continue to talk to their shadow? It would look dumb, right? I should talk to them, right? Similarly, once the real has been provided, to continue honoring and giving attention to the shadow in place of the real thing would be wrong. So that's the relationship in Scripture between shadows and fulfillments of shadows. So now let's look at the one that's in view today. When Luke says... This day would be the fulfillment of Pentecost. How are the events of chapter 2 in Acts fulfilling Pentecost? Well, here we are now at this moment, 50 days after the death of Christ. God's people are alone. They are fearful. They are awaiting direction from God, as they were told. And at this point, God sends, as we will see in a moment, the Holy Spirit to men so that a law may be written on their hearts in place of the one that was written on stone back in the mountain. And the giving of the Spirit will become their means for righteous living, where before, in the shadow, the law was the guide for righteous living. Remember, we're still talking here about a lesser to greater relationship, though. 
So because it is a lesser to greater relationship, whatever was given in the first case would never be equivalent to what was given in the second case. So the, the blood of the lamb in Passover could never save men from their sins. Bulls and goats, as the writer of Hebrews says, can't make that happen. Only the blood of Christ could, but it pictured the blood of Christ. Similarly, the giving of a law on stone was never sufficient to cause men to be righteous or to live righteous, but it is an example or picture of righteousness. And the ultimate means to reaching righteousness is the Spirit of God, the law written on our hearts. And just as it was the case in the earlier day, this giving of, this, of the Spirit in the case of the day of Pentecost is going to be accompanied by great wonders and signs and miracles, just as the giving of the law at the first day of Pentecost was accompanied by those things. So the parallels draw from shadow to the fulfillment, from lesser to greater, in the same way that they do for Passover. By the way, for an interesting study on your own, I would encourage you to go do is to look at the calendar of feasts that the Jews observe, understanding that every single feast is a shadow of a greater fulfillment in God's plan for men. So we've already seen how Passover and now the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of First Fruits are fulfilled in greater events. Similarly, all the feasts on the calendar have that uh, opportunity. There are other events in God's calendar for humanity that are pictured in the various feasts around the calendar. So at this moment, Luke says we are seeing the fulfillment. This is the moment that Pentecost has always been pointing to. And after this moment, the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of First Fruits will no longer be necessary, though you're free to observe it if you want to, but it's no longer necessary because its fulfillment is now being found in a greater form. And as Luke says, all the disciples are still together as they've been commanded to be. Going back to chapter one, when we saw them in the upper room, it says in verse two, as I've read, they are in the house, a house. That's probably our best clue to know they are still in the upper room. This is still a home they're in and no reason to think a different one than the one they were in earlier. Now, at this point, as we've already read, there is a miraculous, unique manifestation from heaven, we're told specifically in the text, that takes place in the room. First, there's the sound of rushing wind. Notice the text does not say there was a wind. There's a sound of a wind, only the sound. Now, that's important because I want you to get a proper mental image of what's going on. What we're saying is this is a supernatural manifestation. That This is not Steven Spielberg, okay? The doors did not bust open and a wind come blowing through the room. This is supernatural. What the men in the room perceive is, if you can imagine the loudest roaring sound of wind that you've heard suddenly takes over in the room and yet there's no breeze just the sound wind in general is a picture of what in scripture of the spirit most clearly you can see this in john john mentions it in a couple places but most clearly in chapter 3 verse 8 i'll just read the one verse 3 8 jesus is speaking he says the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So there is a purposeful, attention-grabbing sound that is intended to evoke the feeling of wind so that you are understanding this is a work of the Spirit. And then secondly, we hear of tongues of fire. And let me give the picture in your mind as it's described here clearly in the text. There is a ball of flame that is in the room. How it gets in there, when it appears, we don't know. It's just all of a sudden they see it. But it's a flame. It's got movement. It's, that's where the word tongues comes in. It's meant to invoke in your mind this picture of how a flame moves and flickers and grows and shrinks and there's tongues of flame. 
And then as it begins to move into the room, it distributes itself so that every single person who's in the room receives one tongue of flame, so to speak. No indication that it burns them, of course. No indication that it's harming them at all. It's an appearance or probably a theophany, which is a, a, the appearance of something physical, but it's truly manifestations of God himself. Another theophany you'd know well, of course, is the burning bush of Moses or the dove that descends on Christ when he is being baptized by the Holy Spirit in his ministry. Those are things we see and perceive as physical, but they're really just God showing himself in a physical form. Theophany, we call it. So these, this is a theophany of the Spirit. Uh, fire. Is fire associated with the Spirit? It absolutely is, and Christ himself makes that association in the Gospels. In Luke 3.16, John answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water. But one is coming who is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, who is he talking to? Who is John the Baptist talking to? Those that were following him in his day, his disciples. But if you remember later as Jesus appears, he tells them to no longer follow him, but follow that new man. He is the Lamb of God. And we studied this as we looked at Luke, for those of you who were with me. But in Luke, it's clear that John the Baptist had many purposes, many related purposes. One of them was, and I say this somewhat facetiously, it was so that he could collect some groupies for Christ before Christ came on the scene, and then he could hand those to Christ. A ready-made audience of followers waiting for Christ so that the moment Christ was uh, uh, baptized and commissioned for ministry by the Holy Spirit, then he was ready to have followers take off with him at that moment. I mean, literally at that moment, right there at the water, ready to go with him. Sort of pre preset followers. To those men, Jesus, uh, John says, you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, for many Christians, that's a questionable statement. They're not sure exactly what that means. My understanding of this verse is only in the context of Acts 2. That these are the same people who, in the upper room, are receiving fire in the moment of their baptism. We all receive the Holy Spirit. That is the baptism that saves. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. But it is not the case, if this is to be taken literally, that we all received fire. Only those who were in the upper room did, as far as we can tell. It would make sense if that's true, because then this crowd is the ones to hear this statement. It would make very good sense that they would hear it. It's all consistent with the activity of the Spirit as it was promised to arrive, as it is necessary to fulfill the feast in the right way. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and the baptism of fire are synonymous terms for us today. To be baptized by fire, to be baptized by the Holy Spirit, to be indwelled by the Holy Spirit are all synonymous terms. Next, Luke says these men were filled by the Holy Spirit. And this is a different experience than the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The word filled implies controlled, as Paul uses the same term in Ephesians 5.18. Controlled, put under the control of the Holy Spirit. So after they were indwelled by the Holy Spirit they then became controlled by the Holy Spirit. And control here in the sense that their, their actions and thoughts were now being directly influenced by the Spirit's in, uh, involvement in their physical body. There is a confusion in the church today over the filling of the Holy Spirit and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. There's folks who would tell you that even after you believe and you're indwelled, you must still seek after and obtain a subsequent event in life, which they call the filling of the Holy Spirit. If you don't have that, 
then they have a consequence. The thought that as a result of the indwelling, there should always be a filling or controlling event. And that controlling event will have a manifestation associated with it. And then some go a step further and say, and that manifestation must always be a speaking in tongues. So they will they'll take that whole line of things and say, therefore, every believer must speak in tongues or they're not a believer. That's sort of the ultimate expression of that thinking. The error in that logic is simple. The error is first to misunderstand what filling means. But secondly, to generalize from a specific to take what is a specific moment with specific circumstances and turn it into a general rule when the scripture never does that. There's never any commentary. There's never any elaboration in, in the book of Acts, nor in any of the epistles, which would indicate that this pat, this event is a pattern. It is always seen as simply a momentary event. And why is this such a particularly important event? Because it's the fulfillment of the Feast of Weeks. Just as the fulfillment of the Passover was an event like none other that will never be repeated. Similarly, the fulfillment of the Feast of Weeks, which we now call Pentecost, is a unique event which there will never be another one like it. And so therefore, any attempt to take the events of this day and make it a pattern and then say it must be repeated is an error. Now, I'll come back to this later in the text tonight. So we'll come back to this thinking of applying the text properly to our lives. But for now, I just wanted to cover that the filling of the Spirit in this sense, is different than the indwelling. But it's a unique kind of thing. It doesn't happen to everyone, nor should we expect it to. In this case, it was important that God achieve that, and he puts these men under the control of the Spirit in this moment. The second point I want to make is with respect to tongues. The men under the control of the Spirit spontaneously begin speaking in languages that they didn't know a moment earlier. When the Bible uses the word tongues to describe language as opposed to the body part when it's just talking about language and it uses the word tongues it's referring to normal understandable human language english spanish hebrew aramaic greek those are all tongues in the way the bible uses the word it does not mean babbling nonsense words that's not a tongue that's just babbling it also does not necessarily mean a dead or unknown language. In fact, as you will see with me here in the text, the languages that are being spoken by these men are eminently understandable. The crowd understands them. And so when we look at the word tongues in Scripture, and this is sometimes, I think, because of the way we see it experienced today or supposedly experienced today, we have come to see the word to mean something mysterious and outside our realm of comprehension and foreign sounds, babbling and, and moaning and all this other nonsense. But that's not what the Bible intends it to mean. The Bible is talking about just pure language. The miracle of speaking in tongues is simply the fact that you're speaking a foreign language you didn't know how to speak. If I suddenly started speaking Chinese to you fluently, that's a miracle. It would have to be. It would have to be. If you knew how to read or listen to Chinese, if you were a native Chinese speaker, you would have no problem understanding me. We could have a complete conversation. I just wouldn't know what I was saying. Honestly, the gift of tongues, the, the speaker doesn't understand their own words because they don't know the language. The miracle is they're speaking something they don't understand and don't know how they're doing it, don't know how to do it. It's a miracle. But someone who knows the language, on the other hand, is fully capable of comprehending it. It is a real language. It has syntax, grammar, vocabulary, structure. It is not babbling. 
So if somebody claims to be speaking in tongues, but from your own ear, it's obviously not a true structured language. It seems to just be a repeating of the same sounds over and over again, and no language sounds like that. Even the, the weirdest sounding language in the world, you can still, in your normal hearing, detect that it's got structure. If it lacks that, you're just hearing someone make up sounds. Perhaps with the best of intentions. Perhaps even thinking that what they're doing is legitimate. But they've been brought to that point through some means other than the Spirit. Because it's not the Spirit. By the way, if you have the gift of interpretation, which Paul says must be in place if the gift of tongues is going to be recognized in the assembly, that's the ability to understand a language you've never previously been able to understand. I start hearing Chinese and suddenly it makes sense to me and I don't know why. I don't know how I'm able to understand the person. That's the gift of interpretation. So somebody who doesn't know Chinese, speaking to someone who doesn't understand Chinese, and we have a conversation. This scene here raises another fundamental question. Why tongues? Why, in general, does this kind of strange manifestation fit God's purpose on the day of Pentecost? Of all the ways he could have had miracles presented, all the ways he could have had these people show him his power and his glory through some kind of manifestation, why speaking in a strange language? Why did he pick that one? Well, consider the origin of multiple languages. When men were rebelling at the Tower of Babel back in Genesis, they were seeking a way to unite themselves in the power of the flesh with the express purpose to reach God, according to Genesis. They were doing everything they were doing in the sin of the flesh, and they were united in one language. God chose to step in and frustrate their efforts at being united and of working together in the flesh by confusing the language, which had the effect of scattering men and putting a barrier between them so that they could not do as their wicked hearts wished to do. Now God, through the Spirit, is reversing or creating an opposite effect. He is uniting a group of men who previously may have spoken different tongues and were certainly not united in culture uh, or in um, purpose, for example. Now they're speaking in tongues they didn't previously understand and that language is not a barrier anymore as they're speaking to people who can understand that language. But even if that's all just a sign, it may have gone away shortly thereafter. I'm not saying that became the instrument for uniting them. It's just a, a picture of something. But the arrival of the Spirit, which created all of this in the first place, is that spiritual uniting of all believers into one body. They're all being baptized, as Paul says, into one body, into one faith, as he says. So where before men had been striving to unite themselves in the flesh and trying to reach God under the consequence of sin, now they were being joined together by the Spirit of God who reached out to them. And they've been made one in the Spirit. I think the reason tongues are used by God in this particular case is to draw that connection back to the way God alone, through the Spirit, can unite men, bringing them to a point of serving Him, of reaching Him, when in the flesh men are not able to do that. They can never achieve it in any real sense. Before, their efforts were being frustrated. Now they're being brought together by God's Spirit. So I think that's why God uses tongues here as an unmistakable message that this is a time of reconciliation among men to God. So now, why do these events, which accompany the indwelling of the Holy Spirit for these people, why do they not happen to all believers? It's really a presumptuous question because it assumes that we would expect it in the first place. It assumes that everything that happens should happen to everyone. Why, how would I defend against that? How would I suggest that, no, not all believers should expect this? First, all believers do share in the key moment of this event. 
in the most meaningful moment of the event, the most important moment of it, we do share in it. Jesus and the apostles have all taught at various points that all believers receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In fact, that's how you become a believer. And they do so as a result of faith in the gospel. So though we did not necessarily have a noisy wind or fire or speaking in tongues, nonetheless, the Spirit entered us no different than He entered them. So the most meaningful part of the event is replicated. Let's not forget that. But we also know that by and large, Christians do not experience miraculous manifestations like those described here in this chapter at the moment we believe. If anyone did, I'm not a skeptic. I'd be interested to know what the event was. But honestly, I've yet to meet anyone who's had one of those events. I've certainly never seen it myself. And I don't expect to, in all honesty. We don't normally hear sounds of rushing wind when we're when we're coming to faith. We don't normally see tongues of fire arriving and diving into our bodies when we come to faith, right? We don't normally fall under the control of the Spirit and lose control of our mouths and begin speaking a language we don't know. That is not normal. It is not. Though there are some, and particularly in some denominations, who will tell you it is to be the norm, and if you have somehow missed it, you've missed something you should have had. But the testimony of Christians throughout the ages and across the world clearly refutes that. The question then is, why does it not happen to everyone? Some have tried to answer it by saying, well, it should, and it's your own fault, something's wrong. That's not a biblical answer. There's nothing in Scripture that I could go to to defend that viewpoint. And here's how you're going to find the answer here. Place yourself as an observer in the upper room as the Spirit arrives. You're just sitting there on the sidelines watching this happen. That's the position I want you to be in for a moment. Remember, you have no understanding of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the church age. You don't know what you know now. You would have no idea what to expect or even that the event was going to happen on that day. Then, out of the blue, with no warning, you see the miraculous displays we've already described. You hear the wind, you see the fire, and so on. As you watch these things happen in front of you, what do you conclude? There's no narration. Luke's not in the room describing it, okay? You're just watching it. What is your conclusion as you see this happening? The first and obvious thing is something just happened that's miraculous. Something of God. You would attribute it to something heavenly, as, as Luke did. Would you come to the conclusion that God was in the flame? If you're coming from it as a Jew, God is often represented by his Shekinah glory or the flame or the light. So you might have gone to that next step and thought, you know, I think God just did something with these guys. It looked like he did something in their bodies. What was this? And then you see them speaking in tongues and you make the connection. God just did something in their bodies and he's causing this miraculous outcome in their bodies. But you still have no clue why. You just you just recognize it, perhaps. Right now. Pretend that the first... Now, let's change the situation for a moment. You're still in the room, and the Holy Spirit is still arriving. But now, I want you to pretend that it took place in a totally different way. I want you to pretend that the first arrival and indwelling of the Holy Spirit happened exactly the same way it happens to you and I today. The way we experience it in our walk today. What if that had been the way God brought the Spirit on the first day, on the day of Pentecost? That is to say, what if the Holy Spirit had arrived silently? What if the only effect in the lives of these men had been the effect we see, which is the steady maturing process and the producing of spiritual fruit over time in their lives as a consequence of the indwelling? Would you have known that anything had happened in the room? You would have had no understanding that anything had even take place on the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost would have come and gone and you would have never known that was the day the spirit arrived. Some day or weeks or months later, 
No doubt God would have made clear to those he indwelled that he was present with them, just as he does in our life as he begins to mature us and show us that he's, he's working in us. But could you trace it back to a day? In other words, the fulfillment of the day of Pentecost would never have been evident, obvious, or knowable. The only way he can draw that connection and make clear to us what he's doing is to make a manifestation for us in the moment and to do it in a way that's unmistakable and, I would argue, unique. What if he chose to do something on that day that he was willing to do in a few other days as well? Now you wouldn't know the meaning of the day because a bunch of different days had exactly the same experience. If it doesn't stand out entirely on its own, it's impossible for us to really grasp the significance of that moment. Luke grasped it, of course, and that's why he opened up the, t- the chapter by saying, on the day that Pentecost was fulfilled. Because he understood the meaning of it as Scripture, as, as the Spirit revealed it to him. I would also argue there would still be Christians today in some camps of theology arguing with one another over whether we even are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, right? There'd be some room for debate on it, on the issue, when clearly now there isn't. This is not, by the way, the first day that men have been indwelled by the Holy Spirit. There was indwellings in the Old Testament. This day is unique because of a dispensation, a change in the way God was going to deal with the affairs of mankind going forward, and he marks that day so clearly that we can't miss it. And its significance is understood because it's connected in the terms of the, of the event to an earlier event, which then pictures the meaning. So by connecting the two together, I get all the meaning. Oh, it's the law written on my heart instead of on the stone. Those connections are made by the, by the shadowing being fulfilled. The day is marked by the events in this miraculous way so I don't miss it. And then, if you want to say it this way, he retires all of those events, puts them back on the shelf, doesn't use them again so that there's no mistaking what he's doing. Now, caveat went to all of what I just said. One caveat is some elements of that moment are reused, like the speaking in tongues. But even that starts to diminish over time so that the full expression of the moment, the wind, the fire and the speaking in tongues, all of it at once never gets repeated. But some smaller elements sometimes do for the very same reasons that they were, were given here, so that we would know that the indwelling was taking place, so that there would be a clear, unmistakable message sent in the process. But once the message is sent and received, the message stops getting sent shortly thereafter. Let's understand what the significance of this moment is in its own day, in the day of Acts, in the day of, of the early church. In Acts 2, God is ushering in a new dispensation. You've probably heard that term and may wonder what it means. It comes from the sense of dispensing grace. God handing out grace to men, and he hands out grace to men over the course of time in different manners, through different instruments, always with the view of Christ, always with the need for salvation through Christ's blood, but, but through different means of administration or revelation. And as the book of Acts opens up and chapter 2 takes place, we enter a new dispensation, one that we are still in right now, which is the time of the church when the dispensation is of grace through the Spirit. How is God dispensing grace to men today? Through His Spirit in the indwelling, through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, made possible by faith in Christ, of course. That dispensation will end at some point, but it is currently underway. Here's what's unique about it. All of God's children in this dispensation will receive something that was previously reserved for only a few, and usually only priests, prophets, or kings. And that is the indwelling influence of the Holy Spirit ever present in their lives. We hear in the Old Testament of men like David or Saul or Samuel having the Holy Spirit come upon them or indwell them or David for a period of time. Uh, In most cases, those were not permanent associations. 
And in no case was it universal among all of God's children. It was a privileged kind of association with God. Today, every single believer has exactly the same privilege that was reserved for a few in the, in the previous dispensation. That's a unique mark in God's economy, and he marks it by the day of Pentecost. Third, this indwelling will unite men and women through a common spirit and purpose and mark them as the bride of Christ. Only those in the time of, the, of this dispensation since Pentecost fall under the title of the bride of Christ. In aggregate, all of us united together by the Spirit form the Bride of Christ in Scripture. We're the only people group in history that will receive that designation. it's, It's a dispensation of the day. Fourth, it has brought to every single child of God, and by that term you know I mean believers. Child of God is a term for believers. It has brought access to every single child of God supernatural power through a spiritual gift when previously supernatural powers were reserved for only a few. Prophets usually. Elijah can call fire down from heaven. That may not be your gift, but you have no less a miraculous potential in whatever gift you did get. When you do something in the Spirit, you're doing a miracle in the sense of what the word means. An act of God through you. Before this dispensation, it was not the case that most children of God, most believers, would have had access to anything like that. We have that unique time in history when every single believer is given that access in some form. Fifth, this dispensation, this day of Pentecost, is the first time we see God's Spirit reaching out to Gentiles and uniting them with Jews, such that the distinction between the two is no longer necessary, in the same way that, as Paul says, you are neither Greek nor Jew, male nor female, free nor slave. And yet we have male and we have female today. It's not like we stopped having gender or, or sexual identity simply because God said those words. But in his view of us, in his elevation of us to children, there's no distinction. And in this age, there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile any longer. And then finally, the arrival of the Spirit opened the door for the preaching of the gospel to the world, where before the world was not brought the message of faith. It was limited to those who were of the Jews who had the prophets and had the word and had the temple and had the ceremonies. It was not a universal appeal. For, for the first time, the opportunity to know and believe and be saved is a universal appeal and it is to be carried universally to the world by Christ's work in us as ambassadors. That's a unique dispensation. Never before in the economies of God has there ever been a time when the message was to the world, come and believe. With all these purposes being accomplished in this moment, should we be surprised that he treats it in a special way and uses it in a very unique way? For example, the nation of Israel saw miraculous displays when God delivered the word to them on the original day of Pentecost. Remember, Moses brought the law down, mountains shaking violently with an earthquake, and there's fire appearing on the top. And what was true about Moses when he comes off the mountain? Face is radiant and glowing. Did God repeat all of those miraculous displays every time a new new child was born into the assembly of Israel and received instruction in the law? No, that's silly, right? Or did the mountain shake and the pillars of fire appear every time a foreigner received circumcision and agreed to become a proselyte into the assembly of Israel? In other words, do we expect that because God did something to a group, that then any newcomer who joins the group should somehow get to see the same thing happen again that happened when the group got it the first time? Of course not. Similarly, when the church received the Holy Spirit for the very first time and all these miraculous displays took place, are we to conclude that every time a new person becomes a believer and joins into that group, they get to see all those things happen again like a rerun? 
It's turning a specific moment into a general rule, which Scripture never gives us license to do. We simply join them in the way that matters, by the Spirit, and we remember the way he uh, inaugurated that beginning with somebody else, the same way the Jews did when they were on the mountain. All right, so now let's look at the, the reaction as a result of what just took place in the room. Verse 5. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, they are full of sweet wine. So the, the second section of the chapter describes the effects of the earlier section of the displays of the Spirit. Now, based on verses 5 and 6, let me summarize what just happened. The group in the upper room experienced the arrival of the Spirit. Then they began to speak in foreign languages. And though we can't know exactly what they were saying, of course, the text in verse 11 here says they were speaking of the mighty works of God. So that would most likely mean they were declaring the saving work of God in, in the course of history or of the gospel itself, of Christ's work on the cross, and in the course of that, probably praising God over his work. So you can sort of generally imagine what they were saying. Now, as their excitement spills over, they pour out of the room and they come down to the street. It's an upper room, so it's this top floor. They had to come downstairs and spill out into, into the streets of the city. Out in the public, the sound of their voices is what's referred to here when it says the, the people heard this sound in, in verse 6. When it says, when this sound occurred, the crowd came together. The sound, the word here for sound in the Greek is different than the word used in verse 2 to describe the wind. My book actually, my version in English actually makes the distinction. It calls the earlier thing a noise. And then in this verse, it uses the word sound. They're different. That is to say, it is not the sound of the wind that brought the crowd. It was the sound of the voices speaking all these languages that brought the crowd. All right. So they don't know about the earlier event. They just see all these people wandering around speaking these strange, uh, different languages. In the crowd that's gathering, this is not the people who were influenced by the Spirit. These are not the men who had the indwelling. These are other people. In that crowd, there was a large number of Jews and, and it says proselytes. So it means a few Greek converts to Judaism or Gentile converts who were visiting from other countries outside of Judea. They were in the town, but they were not native to Judea. So their own languages were foreign languages. They were visitors. They were coming because... In that day, there were several feasts throughout the year when Jewish men were required to celebrate in the city of Jerusalem. One of those was Passover, so that's why Passover, the city swelled at Passover, because men would travel from Rome all over the world to come to Jerusalem to honor that day. Another day that was required was Pentecost. Well, think about it. It's only 50 days apart. If you travel from Rome for Passover, you're not going home and then coming back. So for 50 days... A lot of foreigners stayed in the city. But now, if you were Jewish and you lived in Judea, you would easily walk home and then come back. 
So the town would empty out of all the Jews who spoke the native language and were Judean, but it would retain all these foreign Jews who knew foreign languages. And they would be hanging around. That's why the crowd is predominantly made up of people from outside Judea. They're the crowd that's hanging around for Pentecost. That would mean that these large number of foreign-speaking Jews were the ones to hear these foreign-language-speaking indwelt men and actually recognize what's being said because they're speaking in languages they already know. So the men who are hearing are not receiving a miraculous kind of influence. They didn't need to. They already knew these languages. The miracle, of course, is that the ones they're hearing speak, as the text indicates, were Galileans. Now, how did they know they were Galileans? There's probably two ways, at least. First, people from different regions or in different areas would have distinct physical characteristics that would in some way mark them as having been from another region. So it's possible that Galileans had certain physical traits, certain appearance traits that mark them in that way. And and the crowd knows those traits. And so they recognize these men to be Galilean by their appearance. But there's also I've read also that there was a unique Galilean accent, uh, a very distinct sound to the way they spoke, which would have been apparent even as they spoke a foreign language. And here you see another aspect of God's miracle at work in the circumstances of that moment, because even though these men were now speaking, the Galileans were now speaking a language they did not know naturally. They were also still themselves. They were retaining their own accents. So they're speaking perfect grammar, perfect syntax of a foreign language, but yet their natural language, their natural dialect is still coming through. And that's led this crowd now of visitors to listen to the language being spoken and recognize that it is a remarkable thing to see Galileans speaking languages that Galileans normally don't speak. And in verses 9 through 10, we see a list of the countries that represent the nationalities of those who were present in the crowd. And based on this list of countries we now can know the languages that were being spoken, the tongues that were being spoken by the apostles and the disciples. Based on the fact that these men and from, from the foreign lands could understand what was said, in fact, their own testimony is, how is it they come to speak our language? Therefore, we can say that the languages being spoken in the, among the disciples included Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, Latin, and Nabataean which is a dead language of today. So this, again, actually goes back to what we said a moment earlier in the, in the course today, that the speaking in tongues gift means speaking in real, recognizable languages, not simply uttering silly gibberish that no one understands because it's not a real language. Now, I want you to take a look as we finish today at the effect of this supernatural display, this manifestation on the crowd. And there's two reactions, as you could tell in the text. First, among those who were visiting from outside the land, these Jews and, and proselytes, it caused them to puzzle, the scripture says, and ask questions concerning the meaning of the miracle. They recognized it was an important event. They recognized it was supernatural. They talked about the testimony of God's great mighty works being in the, the, the meaning of what was spoken. But they can't understand why this is taking place. They understand it is happening. They understand it is supernatural, but they don't understand its meaning. The second group at the end of what I've read is another group of Jews, and I would argue they are the local Jews of the city. And their response to these men speaking in languages they don't understand is to mock them and call them drunkards. 
they are not asking questions because they doubt that the event is significant. So I want you to see the contrast. You have one group that recognizes it to be a work of God. Another group that does not. In the group that recognizes it to be a work of God, it leads to questions as to the meaning. In the group that does not recognize it as a work of God, there are no questions. They simply dismiss it altogether. Both of these groups end up becoming models for what you see in the book of Acts generally. That when God reveals himself to men, those who recognize that revelation as a work of God, as a message from God, are then prone to ask questions about the meaning of the message. To those who do not recognize it as a work of God, they go no further with, the, uh, with interest or with inquisitiveness. Now the question becomes, what does God do in response to those who bring questions around the meaning of his work? And the answer to that comes in the second two parts of this chapter, which we will cover next week. But just briefly to, to give you a view of where we're going, when the group asks questions as to the meaning, God now brings to them a messenger in the form of the Apostle Peter, who will deliver a sermon on the meaning of the events. And to that sermon, you will see a response from the crowd. But to those who are not asking the question, who have not recognized this event to be supernatural and meaningful, that group will have a very different response to Peter's sermon. And that's what we'll do next week.